are not just ten do's and don'ts that God gave to his people after he brought them out of um, Egypt. They are a list, a summary of the ten aspects or themes of Christian living, of who our God is and what he expects of us as his people living before his face. And so um, I don't know if many of you expect it to be this long in each commandment, um, but my goal wasn't just, okay, this is the second commandment next week, this is the third commandment next week, this is the fourth commandment, but be able to stop and ask questions. What does this say about our God? What does this commandment say about the, what he calls us to and how we live our lives before him? And one of the reasons we're doing that is that the cool thing about being in a church like ours, as I've mentioned already, being the, the long-term mission team to this particular community, is we have people who are coming to our congregation who are very, very young in their faith. Um, that's not you. You've been Christian for a long time. You have a good grasp of the Bible and the theology contained therein. Um, that's awesome. But a lot of folks have come to Christ in the past few years. Our baby Christians, no matter what their birth certificate says when they were born, um, they were born again you know, within the past 12, 18, um, 24 months. And so one of the reasons we wanted to go through this particular sermon series was to say, this is a good summary of the Christian life. This is who our God is and what he calls us to do. And a lot of what we hope will happen as we work our way through this is you figure out, yeah, commandments one through three were great, got to five, and I had no idea what that was about or that applied to my life. Or maybe you get to eight and, and God's all of a sudden showing you aspects of your life that are not in line with his word, areas that you are able to repent of sin and grow in Christ-likeness. And so this is kind of like a checkup. It's kind of like going in and, and getting your annual checkup with your doctor, working your way through and saying, okay, I, I think I know that. God's brought some fruit in this area. This area, not so good. You know, my lipid panel, it's, it's showing some things I need to work on. And so your lipid panel might be whichever commandment or whichever one it is. And so we are in the second commandment um, this morning. We're particularly looking at verse 5, where God says, not only do not make graven images in the sky, earth, and sea, but do not bow down to them or serve them. And so I'll read all of the second commandment. This is the word of our God. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And here's our focus verse. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Because this is the word of God, why don't we pray this morning before we consider it. Father, thank you for this, your word. Um, in your commandments, you reveal your character. Um, and so we do now what you're commanding us to do in this commandment. We worship you by your revealed, inerrant, infallible word. And so would you come through your Holy Spirit and teach us this morning. We pray through Christ Jesus, your son. Amen. So we've worked through the first parts of this verse. Um, next week, we'll get to the part that I'm sure you probably had questions about in um, the past, the, the blessings and cursings. Um, and sometimes God will relay those blessings and cursings um, in terms of multi-generational blessing and multi-generational cursing. And so um, to your children's children and to their children's children. So we'll get to that next week. Um, that's a question you have. This week, we're particularly jumping in and asking questions. Why did God stop and simply and say, do not bow down to them or serve them. Not only does 
and not making graven images of birds or fish or things that walk on the ground or things we shouldn't do, don't worship them, but he actually makes a delineation between these two words, bow and serve. And what we find is something that we've already studied together as we've looked at the Ten Commandments, that worship is not only what you are currently doing. It is what you're currently doing. This is Christian worship. This is gathered corporate worship. But worship is in all of our life. And so whatever you do tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., maybe you're two hours into your work, or maybe you were snoring away, um, that's worship. Whatever you do tomorrow at 12.35 in the afternoon, that's worship. Whatever you do tomorrow night at 7.50 in the evening, that's worship. Whatever you do during the week during your calling, that's worship. Whatever you do on Saturday, if it's different than what you do Monday through Friday, that's worship. That God has made us as his creatures to worship in all of life. And you see that represented here in what God says worship actually is. And so we might say we worship God in our work in our worship. We worship God in our vocations and what we do on Sunday morning. The way that God describes that here is in bowing and in serving. It's two different words. Um, when they did the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, 200 BC, they made the Septuagint, it's the Greek translation. Um, they used two words to translate those two words, bow and serve. Uh, proskuneo and latreo are the two words, and it's woven all the way through the New Testament. And so the New Testament picks up these same words and goes all the way through the New Testament. And so these two concepts, bow and serve, isn't just two words that show up in the second commandment. The whole of scripture around these two concepts of different types of worship. And so the first thing we're looking at this morning, do you think of worship that way? Do you think of worship the way that the Bible describes worship? That there is bowing worship, and there is serving worship. Bowing worship is what we do right now. Uh, and if you're a Presbyterian, that makes you a little uncomfortable. Um, because the, the way that Presbyterians worship is that um, we do hands in your pocket worship sometimes. And we're still worship. Well, bowing worship is corporate worship when God's people come into his presence and praise him. And most often the position of bowing worship is that people actually have bowed before the Lord God. And so you know, part of my loosening up the frozen chosen is encouraging you in what you do this morning during these 90 minutes is the worship of our whole God that takes the whole of who we are, our bodies and our minds and our affections and our mouths and our thoughts and what we feel and where we are with one another. We take up the whole of who we are in a vertical relationship with our God and we praise him with all that we are. We don't come in and just run through our liturgy and we say the right things and sing the right things and do the right motions where we are, but the whole of our bodies, the whole of who we are is taken up in the vertical, face-to-face, Godward worship of corporate worship and is expressed during the week in what you might call your devotions or your quiet time or your personal worship. That bowing worship is when we are facing our God and we are giving him the praise that is due to him as our God. We are contemplating and considering God as he's revealed in scripture and we are treasuring him in who he is. It's bowing worship. 
and it's important. And God says in this commandment, only do that to me. If you run after idols, you do bowing worship to anything else, it will ruin your soul and wreck your life. But the second kind of worship is serving worship that he discusses. If bowing worship is vertical, face-to-face with the Lord God, serving worship is what God's servants do in his name when they leave gathered worship and they are scattered to serve him wherever they go, whatever they do, whatever their roles, whatever their callings are during the week. And it gather, and it all looks a lot the same. I mean, you, you might be there, and you might be a, a loud singer, you might be a quiet singer, um, you might be a Presbyterian with your hands in your pocket, you might do the little clap, you might do the big clap, you might raise your hands. But it all looks about the same what we do here this morning. But when we head out, we are young, we are old, we are men, we are women, we are husbands, we are fathers, we are mothers, we are wives, and all the things that we head out and we do, all of a sudden worship gets diverse, but it's still worship, and it's serving worship, and what binds our scattered worship together is that we are all servants of the living God. It looks like it here when we're bowing to our God and worshiping and praise. When we go out, our identity doesn't change as Christ worshipers and Christ followers, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is as much worship as what you're doing right now. And I wonder if you think about it that way. We should, we should talk in the way that we speak about these things. We should use precise words. We're going to worship now, but worship doesn't end when we leave. It just transitions to serving worship, from bowing worship to serving worship. And so God in this commandment is saying, it isn't just come into my presence on Sunday morning, wherever you do that, and then go out and do whatever you want. It isn't go out and serve me in the world and neglect gathered corporate bowing worship. That worship, because of how we were made, and because of by whom we were redeemed, encompasses the whole of our lives and actually brings meaning and significance to your lives. I want you to think right now, what is the most boring thing that you do during the week? You're thinking for a minute. And I know for many of you, like, it was pretty fast. Like, it wasn't like, my life is a wonderfully exciting event from one thing to the next thing. What is, what is the most boring, mundane thing that you do between Sunday and Sunday? That most boring, most mundane thing you are doing before the face of God and to his glory. And the beauty of our God and what he does in his sovereignty is that our God wastes nothing. Every motion of every atom, of every molecule, in the end is leveraged and ordained and patterned and tailored by our God to bring him maximum praise. Your expense reports are tailored by our sovereign God to bring maximum praise to Jesus. The dirty diapers you change are tailor-made by our God to bring Jesus Christ maximum glory. And the man you're saying, Joe, that sounds silly. Like, how did dirty diapers bring my God praise? That is who he is, because he calls us to bowing and serving worship. And so, really, a lot of our struggle in our everyday living is that we think there are areas that are really important to God, and then there are areas that he's kind of, you know, he's working on more important things and doesn't really see those things that are going on. Everything 
is a spiritual battle. Every part of what we do, we leverage for God. And so God said, listen, you're going to change diapers to God's glory, or you're going to change diapers in idolatry. You're either going to worship the Lord God, or you're going to worship something else in every single activity that you do. So do you, do you see how worship in all life brings such great potential for wholehearted praise and joy. It isn't like we get a spiritual epidural. It isn't like you walk in and say, today I get to do expense reports and I love them. I cannot wait to do expense reports. They're still hard. But there's an aspect to them in the midst of the boringness, in the midst of the mundaneness, that my God is praised when I do things that I don't particularly enjoy, that don't look like to the world that they are very important. These things are part of my serving worship of the Lord God. And so here in this second commandment, God is challenging us in that. And even interesting enough, so when uh, Protestants decided to name what we're doing right now, um, they actually used um, latreo rather than proscuneo. They actually described a, we call this, this is a worship service. That we, we, we see ourselves in that, that that even coming in, that we believe what we're doing is as servants of God, preparing to go out and serve him. So even in the language that we call what we do, we're claiming worship in all of life. So God shows us in this that he does that. And then secondly, which we'll spill into next week, he says why. He says why. We, we always look for, for, for grounding statements in, in scripture. It says, for our God is a jealous God. Now, you could, do, you could look up in your concordance in the back, you could do a search online in a fancy Bible um, program and look up the word jealous in Scripture. And what you're going to find is that our God loves to describe himself as a jealous God. It isn't that our God throws fits and all of a sudden he kind of flies off the handle when he thinks his church is looking at somebody else. It, 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 it is in the context of his marital covenant with his people that one of God's favorite ways to describe his relationship to us is not just in a covenant, but in a marriage covenant. That the church of Jesus is the bride of Christ, and what God has done is he has not only said, I want you to serve and love me with a wholehearted, faithful love, but that God has given his church a particular, unique, loyal, faithful love that he has committed himself to us in a covenant that allows no other affections. He loves us and he is jealous for us. And he fights against anyone who would try to woo the church away. He fights against any idol, any temptation, any sin that would want to tempt God's people away. Do you think for a minute, guys, let's say you're out at a restaurant with your wife, and you go to the bathroom, you come back, and there's a guy sitting at a table um, in your seat with your wife, and he's doing that kind of like laughing, googly eye thing that guys do when they like girls. Um, what kind of emotions are in you in that? It's, it's like fist emotions. You don't walk up and say, oh, look, you made a friend. <laughs> and 
that emotion of, this is not right. This is an offense to the faithfulness and loyalty of my marriage. That's jealousy. That's godly, good jealousy. It is the covenant that we expect between a husband and wife. It is why we do marriage ceremonies in front of other people. We have people to witness the vows that a husband and a wife take for to one another and that they expect that bride and that groom for the rest of their lives to be jealous for one another, to be jealous for the other spouse's wholehearted, focused, soul and faithful affections and loyalty. And so when our God says, don't carve graven images, don't bow and serve to anything else but me because I am a jealous, a jealous God. He is showing his covenant, loving faithfulness to us and saying when God's people are adulterous in sin, when they're adulterous in idolatry, our God's holy anger is kindled against all of the idols and all of the temptations of his church. Which is really when we find ourselves, when we look here at this particular passage, we find ourselves, honestly, if we're going to take a little bit of a diagnostic about our bowing and our serving worship, we find ourselves often as half-hearted people. We find ourselves often as, as much as I can vary my tone and look at each of you and try and make sure you're not falling asleep. There, there are times that we zone out during worship. There are times an entire worship service is lost because we're thinking about something else. There are times we can go through hours, days, sometimes weeks, without considering not just how the mundane aspects of our life, but even the important aspects of our life are performed before and for our God and his covenant glory. We find ourselves as a half-hearted people breaking the second commandment. And usually we break it in one before we break it in the other. Um, I was a, a swimmer, was a swim coach all through um, high school and um, early college. And so a part of um, what I would do is have to diagnose stroke problems. And um, the interesting thing about swimming, just because of the water and the drag, is that small problems um, create big problems pretty fast. And so one of the early things we try to create um, in our young swimmers is teaching them to breathe to both sides. Um, and so it's you know, typically you know, three strokes, breathe to the right side, three strokes, breathe to the left side. Um, and that might sound like something not very um, important to you if you've never been in swimming, or maybe you've tried before and taken a big mouthful of water and decided you were not going to try that again. But a swimmer that only breathes to one side develops a lopsided stroke. And so you might not know why, but if you watch them, instead of having a regular beat, all of a sudden they have a, it's lopsided. That doesn't look right. And when their shoulders are lopsided, they have to compensate with one of their back feet. And so one of their kicks gets stronger than the other one because they're trying to keep from going crooked down the lane. And what happened is all of that occurred simply because they just breathed to one side rather than two. The same thing happens in our bowing and serving worship. We typically forsake one before we forsake the other 
but it leads to imbalance in the whole of our lives. And so what does it look like if someone focuses on bowing worship and forsakes service worship? It looks like empty, religious, works righteousness. Looks like the Pharisees. That's what they did. They, were, they, they looked really good. At bowing worship, they looked like they had it all together. They knew exactly what to do when they came in to gather worship. They knew exactly how to talk about God. They knew exactly what kind of clothes to wear. They knew exactly what to do. But Jesus' condemnation of them was not just that their bowing worship was empty and you couldn't see, but they actually weren't serving anyone else. That They were actually trying to put heavy weights on others by holding them to the same standard of empty religious worship. They came into worship and their lips were close to God and their hearts were far from him. And a part of the fact that our a strength of our stream and tribe of Protestant Christianity is that we love true theology about our God and we want to know our God and that's so good. It leads to the temptation of that kind of empty, bowing, serviceless Christian worship. And so, so many Presbyterians can come in and think, I know all about Westminster Confession of Faith, and I can pass any theological exam, and I can come into worship, and everybody thinks I'm near to God, and my heart is cold. I don't remember the last time that I repented. And there is hidden, but still hidden injustice, and a lack of service to God, and a lack of joy in all of my life. That's what happens when someone tries to do bowing worship and neglect service worship. All of it gets gutted. What happens if we flip that around? What happens if someone tries to just serve God and doesn't give much attention to bowing worship? What that looks like is social action works righteousness. Where somebody goes out and works in the soup kitchens and fights against injustice in the world and does all of these things, but they're doing those things because they want to have the virtue of someone who fights for injustice. They want to be someone who's out there making a change in the world because they want to be someone who makes a change in the world, not because they see them, see themselves as instruments in God's hands, working where they are. And where they lost it was they did not give attention to what we're doing right now before we hold the word of our God in front of us and come to know him in bowing service, which, multi which, which helps and motivates our service of others in the world. And by the way, there's a big generational shift right now happening even present within our church. And so you know, you're, I'm, I'm feeling more and more like an older person in the church. And so um, my, my 40th birthday is in two weeks. And so it's uh, feeling old. And so I'll, I'll put myself in the old group. And so if you're old like me, um, we typically were wired generationally um, to focus on bowing service. If you're younger than I am, you're a young person, um, then you're probably more oriented towards social action. And what God's saying in this passage is that we need both oriented around him and his glory, or we lose both. We focus on one to the expense of other, we lose them. We're like the, the swimmer that can only breathe the one side and the whole stroke falls apart. And so we serve our God because we love our God and we want to come into his presence and it is important for us to worship God Godward, facing God with the whole of who we are with our covenant church family on Sunday morning. 
and we go into the world, not as social justice warriors, we go into the world where God has put us to love truth, to pursue righteousness, and to walk humbly with our God because we know our faith is not empty and we have an opportunity to serve him during the week. We're not imbalanced. This is where the beautiful part of it is. We can't fix ourselves. You felt yourself falling off on the serving side? It's not like you can get better at bowing worship. You felt yourself falling off on the bowing worship side? It's not like you can fix yourself on the service side. What scripture says is that our lot is that we struggle to figure this out and that we find ourselves, even after our conversion, as half-hearted worshipers of God. We continue to battle the sin that so easily entangles us. We hate it, we forsake it, and we know that in this life we will never be perfect. And so the second commandment isn't a worship better, it's a look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read to you in Matthew 4, and you're going to hear something um, a little bit familiar in Jesus being tempted by um, Satan when he was starting his um, ministry. Um, this is right after he's gone into the wilderness. He's been fasting several days, um, and Satan shows up. Um, by the way, this isn't a, this isn't a new pattern. Um, and so the, the first Adam was in the garden, not needing to fast at all, having everything that he could ever think. And Satan shows up and tempts him. The first Adam gives in to temptation. The second Adam goes through a period of 40 days of fasting, is hungry, is famished. And again, Satan shows up and tempts him before he begins his public ministry. And it says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and... In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You shall proskuneo the Lord your God, and him only shall you latreo. And then Jesus went from that day forward, as he had done all through his um, quiet ministry before he entered his public ministry, as the one, the only human who has ever done bowing worship and serving worship to perfection in the loving relationship that the Lord Jesus Christ had with his Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit on our behalf, performing the perfect record of righteousness for us. Where the first Adam worshiped Satan and served Satan, 
by cowardly taking the fruit and entering it. The second Adam resisted and obeyed and continued in the faithfulness that establishes the covenant of grace by which we are able to cry out to our God, Lord, have mercy on me and know that he will have mercy because the perfect record of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his bowing and in his serving worship and what he did in synagogue worship and what he did by himself in prayerful worship to his Father and what he did in his roles and responsibilities. He was a single man. He was itinerant rabbi. He was a friend to his disciples. He's the Messiah. And in that serving worship, he served perfectly as the stand-in for us. And when Satan came and said, break the second commandment, and I will give you everything, Jesus responded by saying, I have everything already. And the scriptures tell me to bow and to serve before the Lord God only. And he did. That wasn't the only thing that he did. And that wasn't the only time he said the equivalent of, get behind me, Satan. We go in Matthew 16, a little bit later, and the narrative recorded about the life of our Savior Jesus. And it says in verse 21 of chapter 16, from that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this should not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, almost the exact same words that you just heard me read in Matthew 4, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You see that there came a second temptation. Jesus, in his bowing and his serving for us, was headed towards the gruesome, humiliating suffering on the cross as he not only provided the perfect record for our sins, but bore the wrath of God due to us for breaking God's law. And in that moment, not only did Peter not understand, but Peter could not conceive that bowing to God and serving him could lead to the ignominious death of the cross, to what looks like weakness, to what looks like foolishness. And Jesus responded the same way that he responded to Satan, to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He resisted the temptation twice. Jesus knew the bowing and the serving worship of God led through humiliation before it had led to glory. That God had called him to victory, that God had called him to triumph, that God had called him to the perfect plan of God which never fails, that God had called him to the best plan for his blessed son and that it involved his gory death on a cross. And again, he responded with faithful bowing and serving that cost him his own life for us and for his, our salvation as he bled and died on the cross for us. It's because Jesus, our Jesus, well, he's a jealous husband. Not only he is jealous for us, he is jealous for our holiness and he is jealous for our redemption 
and he is jealous for our progress in the faith, so much so that when the Apostle Paul was writing and teaching about marriage, it's in a section that is called the Hostophilum, uh, the house rules, Paul and Peter both felt the need to instruct congregations on how they are to live their lives with one another. This is what husbands should do. This is what wives should do. This is what kids should do. This is what employers should do. Well, Paul's in the middle of talking about husbands and wives. It is almost as if, as he's writing, he didn't intend to do this, but he gets so caught up in who Jesus is that in Ephesians 5, he's reading, and he, he's writing to the church at Ephesus, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Is that the beautiful work of our jealous husband, the Lord Jesus Christ? He comes in his jealousy to the church and does not just say, What's the matter with you? You were flirting with all of these different idols? What are you doing? He comes to us and he calls our adulterous idolatry what it is, and then he sets about the work of cleansing us and washing us with the water of his word, of calling us to repentance and telling us of his grace and sacrifice for us, of continuing to love us and through his loving jealousy for us and for his church, he is vanquishing sin in our church and in our lives as individuals. You see, our jealous husband will, in the end, win for himself his perfect bride. So that in the end, he will present her to himself. He doesn't say, hey, listen, I'll be there on the, on the wedding day. You better be there, too. He says, I'm working on you. I'm atoning for your sins. I'm sacrificing the expense of my own life to forgive you. And I'm making you beautiful in holiness. I am getting you ready for our wedding. I am doing that as I bow and as I serve. As the one that fulfills all the commandments, especially the second commandment, because I am that kind of God to you. You see, before God gives us his law, he gives us his love. And his love is always greater than his law. And so when we come to bowing and serving before our God, when we come and we see, it isn't that God says, it doesn't matter, you don't need to obey. He calls us to a radical obedience, but that obedience is motivated by his love. And so as we stare at our Savior Jesus and is bowing and serving for us and makes us want to worship him, as we read these scriptures, we see Jesus to be more beautiful than we have seen him before. And we come into worship, and we come before his word, and we give him praise and honor and glory the more we see of him. And the more we see him live his life of sin-hating service and of holiness in his life, the more we become like him and want to do the same. 
what sin looks beautiful in comparison to Jesus? What kind of insanity do God's people have to believe to give any quarter to any sin, to any breach of God's law? They see the preciousness and beauty of Jesus and what it took for him to atone for our sins on the cross. How do we take any handling of any sin and say it's not a big deal when it cost our husband his own life for us? As we see Christ, we want to grow in holiness. And so if you come to the Ten Commandments and you see them as certainly God's commandments, thus saith the Lord, do this and live, and you try without favor in Christ, without the grace that comes through repentance, if you just say, I'm going to do the Second Commandment this week, I'm going to come next week, Joe said, frozen chosen, I am raising my hands, I'm clapping, I'm going to go out this week, and I'm going to do expense reports like nobody's ever seen, and Jesus is absent from your worship, it is no better than the Muslim or the atheist. Empty morality cannot save. The law of God first shows us the beauty of our husband Jesus before it calls us into faithfulness and loyalty with him. We see in the law our lack. We see our failure. We see at every point we cannot. And we see at every point Christ has and has for us. And through the fruitfulness that comes from loving him and being loved by him, we start to bear fruit often, often to our own surprise. Have you ever, like, in your growth as a Christian, like, loved somebody that you thought was not very lovable and just thought, like, where'd that come from? Like, that's just not who I am. Have you ever done something for someone else just out of love for Jesus? And don't be, like, surprise yourself. Like, wow, like, where'd that come from? Where that comes from is the Lord God through the Holy Spirit. Focus your eyes on Jesus, you start to love him. And as you love him, you're changed by his love. And as you're changed by his love, it changes your bowing worship and your serving worship. And so the second commandment calls us to fix our eyes on Christ. To fix our eyes on our jealous husband. Isn't the jealousy of Jesus such good news? Like he will not give up on us. He is faithful to us. He is ticked off with a holy rage if any kind of temptation comes at us. He hates all of our sins and will not tolerate it. You can, you can try and go and sin, and Jesus will make your life miserable because he loves you. And that's what sin does. David said when he had hidden sin, it felt like his bones were wasting away. It was like he was, he was having some kind of like fibromyalgia, like there was pain in his body because he was not confessing his sins. That's the faithfulness of our God. That's the love of our God for us. Not that way. This way, dear one. Forsake that sin. Walk in righteousness. Repent. Know my love and grace. See what I've done for you before you try to do anything for me. There's the love of our God. The beautiful Christ who we have. And is bowing and is serving. And is resisting every temptation. Because you see what? What the first Adam should have done he should have gone before the Lord God and said my wife has sinned she's believed a lie and she's eaten the fruit not only do I ask that you'd have mercy on her but I'm willing to die in her place that she might be restored to life I will give myself Lord God on behalf of Eve 
That's what the first Adam should have done. And instead, he entered into cowardly, passive sin himself. Until one day the second Adam came with his bride, the church, who had given herself to disloyalty and idolatry and spiritual adultery. And he came and did what the first Adam should have done. Lord God, this is my wife who I love. She has believed a lie and fallen into sin. Would you take my life in exchange and give her new life instead? It's the beauty of the gospel and what our Christ has done for us. Why don't I pray for us and we can respond in song. Father, we're grateful for Jesus Christ, our Savior.